Namaste everyone, my name is Avinash Anand Singh. Welcome to the recent episode of uh, Being Iconic with Avinash Anand Singh. Today we have a very interesting guest. Uh, we have Professor Raj Raghunathan, who is a professor of marketing at McComb School of Business in the University of Texas, Austin. Professor Raj, uh, from Indian origin, he did his education from Bits Pilani and went to do his MBA from Iron Capita. And later on, he completed his PhD from Stern School of Business, New York. He's also a very successful author. His book, If You Are So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy, is one of the best sellers. He also teaches a very famous course on happiness online on Coursera platform, which is called as Life of Happiness and Fulfillment. And it's another course now, which is launched on EDX. It is called as Happy Employees and Return on Investment course, which is, the acronym is HEROIC, right? He's also uh, recognized as the marketing science younger scholar in 2005 for his contribution to marketing and also awarded the prestigious NFS Career Award of $4,40,000. So everyone, I hope you enjoy the show with Professor Raj. Professor Raj, thank you for coming in. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, yes, my pleasure. When I saw that award of $4,40,000, one thing is clear, happiness makes you a lot of money, right? <laughs> um, that particular uh, award was for a different project, not for the happiness project, just so okay. you know. Um, yeah, but I mean, there is a lot of interest in happiness, a lot of research going on currently on happiness. Uh, it is a big topic, for sure. Right, right, sure. So to start with, I went through your autobiography and I, I will encourage all the listeners to just Google it on your website. Very interesting one, short, but it was such fascinating journey. And I hope you publish a book on this as well. But can you take us through uh, your childhood and you know, the initial years of what kind of mindset you had growing up and then how your uh, engineering and the kind of things you went through and the experience of marijuana as well, right? That was something which you know, was a very catchy thing. So can you just quickly go through the, the entire childhood experience you had? Yeah. Um... You know, I had a kind of a typical childhood, I suppose, uh, during that time of the, uh, that, that time in India, uh, I was, um, you know, in a middle class family, my, my father was working for the railways, uh, kept getting transferred around. So I saw a lot of India through uh, growing up. And during those days, uh, there wasn't a lot of concern about what is now called stranger danger, right? that is my child going to fall into some kind of a dangerous situation because some lunatic is going to, you know, take out a gun and start shooting people. At least in the US, there's a lot of that. In India, perhaps we don't have the fear of guns, but maybe somebody's going to kidnap a child or uh, going to come in harm's way. So my parents just let me loose uh, on the streets. You know, I would just go around and come back before dark usually. But even if I didn't, I don't think there's a lot of concern that, you know, this is a dangerous neighborhood or they just assumed that, yeah, you must be out of friends. And they started calling people and things like that, which gave me a lot of trust in the universe, I would, uh, I would think. And it also made me quite independent in terms of making my own decisions. So one thing that stands out is uh, I, in my second grade, I think it was a first or second grade, very early on, I had to transfer a bus in order to get to my school. So you're taking a public bus. You have to go to a bus depot kind of a place, you know, get off one bus and go into another bus and then that bus would take you to the school. And likewise, coming back. So as a, imagine as a six, seven-year-old child, I was doing this journey by myself. Okay. And you know how crazy bus depots are in India, right? Very crowded, chaotic, uh, noisy, uh, you know, a lot of heat, smoke. Uh, so 
I, I think that in a way, I'm very fortunate to have had that kind of a, I wasn't molly coddled, you know, uh, I, I was kind of let loose. And I think that that gave me a lot of confidence in myself that I could solve problems or make decisions and um, made me more independent and stimulation seeking and exploratory. Okay. Which I think a lot of uh, kids nowadays are missing. Um, you know, I, I was very interested in the topic of happiness from a very, very early age as well. And um, I was very interested in this idea of, you know, enlightenment, if you will. So maybe through reading Amar Chitra Katha, I don't know if you've read it. Uh, yeah. It used to be very popular when we were growing up, but there were stories of different kinds of, you know, people, including Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and, and things like that. I would read these stories and I would want to be in a state of enlightenment. I would want to be happy always, you know and um, be uh, completely unfragmented um, inside of me, you know, harmonious and uh, whatever the, you know, manifestations of being in a state of enlightenment are, enlightenment are, I, I wanted those. So that's another thing that kind of stands out. And, and you asked me about the marijuana experience. Yeah, that was, that came later, obviously, you know, yeah. uh, when I was going to engineering and, and later on, um, you know, it, it's very interesting when you look at reality, uh, most people assume that the version of reality that they see is the only reality there is. Mm. Okay. And I think some of these mind altering substances and nowadays, you know, there's, there's other ones that are growing in popularity, including psilocybin, which is the active chemical inside um, mushrooms, um, ayahuasca, um, you know, things like that, that I personally feel uh, are good to, um, partake of once in a while just to expand your horizons okay obviously you have to do it in a setting that's legal and things like that yes. and it's not for everyone uh, and you know if you i'm not saying that everybody has to do it or anything like that but i just say i just think that um our assumptions about what reality is how people are what the universe is about etc uh, is often more narrow than it could be it would be beneficial for people from the standpoint of being compassionate from the standpoint of being creative um, from the standpoint of, you know, wondering and uh, really kind of, you know, almost having that goosebumpy feeling of uh, what a beautiful universe we live in. It's so expansive. Yeah. It's so, it's so mysterious. That feeling, you know, for, for us to get that, sometimes it's uh, useful to have those kind of experiences. And it's not necessarily that you have to do it through marijuana or through ayahuasca or anything like that, but I think it does help. Um, there is a book by Michael Poland which just came out, How to Change the Mind. It's on this topic, okay, uh, that I would recommend to people who are interested in digging deeper. And even uh, atheists like Sam Harris, right? There's a mm. book called Waking Up. Um, right. And he talks about how, you know, it can be a spiritually awakening experience to, uh, to partake of these things sometimes. Right. Right. So now, Professor, I think uh, you know, somebody like you being in the academic field, right, doing a lot of research and happiness and things like this. Now, if you look back to your childhood, and especially the education part, the, you know, the primary, secondary education you went through, what role do you feel that the education played? Like critically looking at, do you feel that what people say, the education becomes a blockage, right? Because it creates a conditioning and narrows your abilities and you know, the kind of gifts you have. And then suddenly exploring a different world wherein we try all these things being a rebel and like I read your biography, you went and did everything and no, your intention of going to bits also was to run away far away from your family, like to have the freedom and all that stuff, right? What, how significant the schooling is and currently the one we have in our society, how, what kind of detrimental effect it has on people, on the kids possibly? 
Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, reasons why education, the current education system, not just in India, but universally um, does not do enough. Okay, I don't know if overall I would say that it's detrimental. I think it's good to have education. And I think by and large, um, educational institutions around the world do more good than harm, uh, right. is, is my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, you can, you can categorize knowledge into different kind of buckets. Okay. Mm. There is knowledge on skills and aptitudes. And I think that we do a reasonably good job on that dimension. You know, yeah. if you want to learn math, if you want to learn about science, about physics, about chemistry, etc. Um, I think educational institutions around the world, by and large, do a good job. Okay, uh, we become more skilled at understanding phenomena in in uh, using materials to our advantage in building bridges, for example, or in uh, coming up with a marketing plan, etc. We are better at it than say people might have been 200 years back. I don't right. think there's any doubt about it. Okay, and a large part of that is due to the education. Okay, so on the skills dimension, I think we do a pretty good job. I think on the morality dimension perhaps not so good a job. Okay. I think that implicitly or explicitly we're given the message that what counts as success is becoming more rich, more famous, more powerful, more, you know, wealthy, uh, more, you know, higher status and so on. And um, I think that there's not as much attention paid to uh, who's paying the consequences of all this uh, desire for progress. Okay. If everybody wants to become richer and all that and own a bigger piece of land and a larger house with a swimming pool and consume a lot of energy. It's coming mm -hmm. from somewhere. You know, somebody has to bear the cost. And usually it's the earth, you know, by that, I mean other animals or environment rivers, etc. So on the moral dimension, I don't think we do as good a job. And I think we do a particularly bad job when it comes to um, the happiness dimension. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can think about skills as one thing. You can think about whether you're being a good person is another thing. And the third dimension is um, at the end of it, are we making people happier? Are we making them lead a happier, more fulfilling life? And on that dimension, I think we do our education systems do a particularly bad job. And you can break that topic down into things like, um, you know, um, alignment between what your interests are and where you seek your job, right? Which is a very, very important determinant of your happiness. If you're not doing something that you enjoy doing, right. you're probably yeah. not going to be happy. And yes. yet, you know, our education systems hardly ever really talk about this topic. You know, let's sit down and identify where your core interests are, where your aptitudes are, what your strengths are. Right. We're just basically left to kind of, okay, go figure it out by yourself. You know, all we're going to give you is skills. You got to figure out, introspect and figure out where you go, you want to work. Okay. Right. We're not even going to tell you what avenues are available for you. You know, there's no topic like that. What are the emerging jobs? Okay. Right. Uh, I, I don't recall... Uh, taking a class like that. And I don't think it's still even to this day available in most places. Okay. Right, yeah. um, so um, you can think about those as two kind of, you know, three buckets rather. And then you can think about another kind of completely different way to categorize, which is declarative knowledge and procedural knowledge. Okay. Declarative knowledge is facts, you know, the what of things, you know, when was something uh, when did something happen? For example, what date it happened and uh, what is um, the kind of table of elements? Okay. Then there is procedural knowledge, which is how of things, you know, how do you ride a bicycle, right? How do you play the guitar? Okay. How do you meditate? And I would argue that for your happiness, procedural knowledge is often more important than declarative knowledge. And um, yet we focus almost exclusively on declarative knowledge and very little on procedural knowledge. You know, procedural knowledge is left up to you to discover outside of your education. 
you know, you go and learn to play tennis, you go and learn to meditate, etc. Mm. Very little of procedural knowledge, which again means that, you know, we are not really coaching people for happiness. Right. Yeah. 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 So now coming quickly before I jump on the, your core expertise of happiness, quickly, how was your Vipassana experience? I, I read you also went through Vipassana and I just missed reading that article you have posted also, but quickly, because I've been through Vipassana as part of my post-graduation, it was a mandatory thing in our college. So first year I had a oh, good really? time. Very Which college? Which college uh, I, we did a, my postgraduate from a college in Pune. It is called Sadhana Center for Management and Leadership Development. Professor M.S. Pillai, who was the founder of uh, Symbiosis, S.C. Machardi, he was the founding director of uh, Sadhana. So in the first year, we were exposed to yoga, workouts, and meditation as a compulsory part of the curriculum. So for me, that was the initiation in the spiritual uh, understanding of things. So how was your experience of Vipassana? I really liked it a lot. I, uh, you know, I'm a high stimulation seeking kind of a person and uh, an extrovert and usually talk a lot. Um, and uh, so most people felt that I wouldn't be able to survive 10 days of total silence. And as you know, you know, it's not just a mere silence, it's noble silence, right? Where you don't even look at people in the eye. I mean, ideally, that's how it's supposed to be. Um, uh, and so I myself also felt that this was going to be a huge challenge. But, you know, I've been teaching now for 20 years. And at that time, when I went to the Vipassana retreat, uh, it was 2012. So I'd been teaching for 12 years. And even though I was a bad student myself, in many ways, I wouldn't attend classes if I, unless I was forced to and things like that. Um, I, uh, I felt that, you know, being a good student is very important. Now that I was a teacher, right? The shoes on the other foot. <laughs> um, so I didn't like it when students would come in um, late into class, for example, or uh, had their cell phones open or were chatting with, um, you know, each other, not paying attention, etc. So I told myself that in Vipassana for those 10 days, I'm a student and I'm going to be the best student I can be. Okay. I'm going to be the best student I can be. I'm going to do everything that they ask me to. Doesn't matter what state I'm in. Okay. Even if I haven't slept very well, if they say, okay, come and meditate and pay attention, I'm going to do that. And uh, that's what I did, you know, and I took it one day at a time. There were, you know, times like after the second or third day when I really felt like I, I wanted to leave. Um, I couldn't take it, but I just said, okay, I'm just going to give it another half a day or another one day and just took it one step at a time. And then by the end of it, I had a really miraculous experience. I mean, you should read that um, right. thing. I, I had a very bad back and uh, the backache got cured through that Vipassana wow. experience in, in a very weird way. Okay, I can't, it'll take time for me to kind of go through that. But right. um, so I, I don't know if it is because I took it seriously or, or what, but um, it's just one of those, you know, like, you know, sometimes people ask you this question, tell me something really weird that's happened in your life. Okay. And uh, I think that that's the story that I would say. That's the most right. weird thing that has happened where I had a bad back, I had a herniated disc. They took... Um, uh, uh, fMRI, uh, you know, a CAT scan of my back. And it, I, there was no doubt, you know, there was a herniated disc and that got cured through that Vipassana experience. So overall, I have very positive feelings about it, not just physically, you know, that happened, but also because mentally, um, it was very nice to get that period of total silence and just sink into the moment and mm -hmm. looking at nature, these birds building a nest together, you know, it's just such a beautiful thing to watch the right. progression of building of a nest by two mm -hmm. birds who are obviously a pair or something. Um, you know, I mean, when do you get to see that, right? Like actually in front of your eyes, two birds, two robins, red, beautiful birds building a nest. And I saw it unfolding. You know, I didn't see the whole nest being built, but parts of it, 
through about three mm-hmm. or four hours of just observation. But it was just so interesting to see it. You know, they'd just be flitting around and go and pick up the right appropriate blade of grass or, or dry twig and bring it over and then, and then fit it into the structure. And then sometimes the, both of them would be there together. And then they'd obviously be communicating about whether the species is good or not. I think, I don't know what they were doing, but overall they were building the nest. Right. And it was just so beautiful right. to watch it. Yeah. And just the slowing down of life um, mm. so that you can kind of observe what's going on at the micro level is a beautiful experience. Right. And I think a lot of spiritual uh, you know, uh, teachers also talk about the aspect of uh, cleansing your consciousness. Your mind is so active, so much of chaos going on. And when you, and what you mentioned, such a mundane experience of two birds making a nest, which is possibly unnoticed by people in the city or in the villages, right? But suddenly when you bring a, a, a level of silence in your mind, suddenly the reality which is existing starts appearing differently, right? So do you feel that we don't see reality as it is, but in what state or what kind of uh, mindset or mind we are holding in that point of time? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a quote by Anais Nin. Uh, it goes something like this. Uh, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Right. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. You know, another kind of, uh, similar kind of a quote is when you smile, the world smiles at you. Okay. Right. Um, so your mindset has a big influence on uh, how you perceive reality to be. And in the context of um, mind altering substances, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit with marijuana and ayahuasca and all that. Um, there is a, there is a concept called set and mindset, right? Uh, so or setting and, and, uh, Set and setting, sorry, set and setting. And set refers to mindset. You know, what is your mindset? Are you in a happy state or not? And uh, setting refers to the environment. And uh, the effect that a particular mind-altering substance is going to have on you, what kind of experience you're going to have, whether it's positive, whether it's growth-oriented learning versus something that's um, evoking paranoia in you and it's not at all useful, really depends on your mindset and the setting, the environment in which you have it. You know, if it's like a beautiful environment, you're with friends, etc., you're going to have a more positive experience and a learning experience. So there's no doubt at all, you know, that your, your attitude, the, what you bring, you know, your, the, the space between your ears is a super critical determinant of the reality that you experience. Right. Yeah. You know, when I was reading your, autobi- uh, your autobiography and I saw, you know, mention about when your cousin got into IITs, the top rankers, and you felt a bit of insecurity or maybe like, you no know, left out and, and then things like, uh, uh, you know, building the self-image, the confidence, going for getting getting clear the BIT, and then uh, things like you know getting fascinated with these drugs, and same time uh, the the thing in IMS wherein you went to the dust culture and all the stuff. Now, with all that kind of experience, and today being a leading professor and kind of world authority, and I have in the way of uh, the topic of happiness, what is uh, kind of the philosophy of life you have right now? Do you have a concrete philosophy through which you look at life through those lenses? Or is it like you experience life uh, moment by moment as it comes up? Or is it something definite you have in the mind now? See, uh, what is my philosophy of life? That's a very uh, broad question, you know. Uh, I don't know which particular angle to take on it. Uh, I think that you can take the angle of uh, what are my core set of values Okay, uh, you can also take the um, angle of what set of priorities I have 
and to some extent there is some overlap between those two topics let me just break it down into you know a couple of things okay first of all i think it's very very important to in my opinion okay i mean this is all about opinions and people might differ and and it's it's great that people differ on this in my opinion it's very very important to not lose sight of what kind of things make you happy okay mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately in my opinion life is about um leading uh, or so having a set of experiences that make you feel positive that give you a sense of satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment meaning etc okay whatever set of words you want to use to refer to that emotional aspect of life um if a, if your life at the end of you know when you're when you're you know in your deathbed if you look back on your life and you say that look i've had a very rich emotional life you know overall um i there's nothing that i would really regret okay that is a good life to have led okay and to prioritize that and see that that is important I, you know to me it's a, it's a very very important thing to do um because if you don't do that then it's very possible that you get distracted by other things you know be it money or fame or power or ego or just mindlessness and you know doing things that don't give you satisfaction they're boring etc you just kind of get swept away by what the crowd is telling you to do that you you look back on your life at the end and you think you know what a waste that was you know that i had so many opportunities to do so many beautiful things and here i am at the end of it and i have a lot of regrets okay that's not a good life so i think that prioritizing and recognizing leading a life of happiness and fulfillment is very important is is one priority i have okay um the second thing um that through prioritizing this happiness and fulfillment that i've discovered um and i'm in a good position to be able to do this because i'm a professor and i'm now teaching a class on happiness so i look at a lot of research on this topic and i don't really restrict myself to the scientific community uh, either right i mean i i i'm also somebody who's open to spiritual traditions and and you know the old religions and so on so what i've gathered over time is that in the process of prioritizing happiness and leading a life of fulfillment and uh, meaning you come to the conclusion that perhaps the most important thing to do here is ironically not to worry too much about your own problems you know but mm-hmm. to be of service to other people uh, but to look up and see what is going on in other people's lives and get engaged with that and try to help them out you don't have to do big things like you know uh, donate a million dollars to some kind of orphanage or or things like that be, it's great if you can do it but mm-hmm. uh, you just kind of on a day to day basis for the people that you come across and usually it's your family and your close friends be the best version of yourself that you can be right. for them and help them out in many ways you know small ways i mean if they're going through a my son lost a tennis game and he's feeling really down and out okay and i might be frustrated as well that he did not do his best or play his best game but rather than take it out on him and be angry with him to try and mm-hmm. make him see you know how this is a learning experience and good things will follow you know you keep right. practicing and keep yeah. doing your thing that kind of a thing you know so uh so those are some things you know i mean prioritizing happiness and fulfillment and recognizing that compassion kindness uh right. is a very very important thing you know um yeah so Go now introduce now how for a layman you will define the term happiness what is happiness from a scientific aspect but in a more layman understanding what would be happiness Yeah so I talk about happiness as being an umbrella term that captures a lot of different kinds of experiences and emotions under it okay right. so you first of all I don't think anybody would argue that happiness um uh is definitely 
going to be higher if you have a lot of love in your life, a lot of joy in your life, a lot of hope, a lot of gratitude, a lot of laughter, a lot of interest, a lot mm. of engagement and awe. Okay, a lot, you know, there's maybe 10, 12, 15 different kinds of positive emotions that we all go through, okay, yes. which are very familiar to us. Yes. And all of those are accommodated under the umbrella of happiness. Okay. So if you have a life in which most of the time you're either in love, okay, not necessarily romantically in love, right? You're in love with uh, uh, playing the guitar, right? Love with watching a sunset, love with uh, uh, your pet, right? So you're in love or you're feeling joyful or you're feeling serene and tranquil or you're feeling hopeful or you're feeling a sense of awe or you're laughing a lot or you're really engaged in something. Um, then that's a good life, you know? Mm. So it's different positive emotions. It's also pleasure, right? Which I have not mm. talked about so far, but, you know, having a great, nice bath on, on a cold right. day, having a nice warm shower, right? Or eating something really tasty, listening to something that's beautiful, etc. Okay, so pleasure, positivity, but also more than that, you know, doing something that you feel is the right thing to do, even right. if it is coming at a cost to your pleasure or positivity, you know, maybe you feel that, yeah, you know, I want to become a, the best interviewer I can be. Okay. And in order to do that, you actually read through the person you're interviewing his or her autobiography like you did. Right. Yeah. So that you can ask good questions. Okay. Yeah. Make yeah. it an useful, engaging experience, not just for you, but for the person being interviewed, but also for the audience. Okay. Right. So that, Reading the autobiography um, may not be that engaging, you know, may not be that interesting, mm -hmm. uh, especially just before you began, you know, I mean, say, should I read it? You know, I'm feeling lazy. Maybe I should watch a Netflix show, but taking that step to do it and being diligent about it, you know, it's going to come at a cost to your pleasure. Uh, right. Most likely, okay, you're going to put in some hard work. You're going to maybe miss sleep, etc. but doing it because it's the meaningful thing to do. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you can think of all of those as being under the umbrella of happiness. So it's, it's a little bit complex in that way, but mm. people understand it. You know, it's not like mm. so complex that, you know, people have to say, whoa, 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 wait a second, you know, let me just digest that. I don't really understand it. No, nice. uh, I think that people understand that happiness can come in many varieties. And sometimes um, for the sake of longer term happiness, you have to sacrifice shorter term happiness. And if you don't do that, then you're going to suffer in the long term, etc. People understand that, you know, it's, right, uh, right, right. it's not, you know, so complex that people don't understand it. So that's what I mean by happiness. Now, uh -huh. there is a particular kind of emotion that I think most people gravitate towards when they think about the term happiness. Okay, so for many people, it's love, right? Um, that for me, happiness means, you know, being with my loved ones. You know, if you go ask your mom, she'll probably say that, you know, having my children mm -hmm. around me, etc. Uh, for me, um, happiness has a lot to do with freedom, okay? Freedom over my own mind, freedom over my own instincts, and um, the sense of kind of lighthearted joy, right? Mm -hmm. Where I can afford to take things in a not serious fashion, okay? I think that's a very important definition for me of happiness. So yeah. the, the best moments in my life when I'm, when, are when I'm totally chilled out, you know, where I don't have huge obligations that are kind of hanging over my head, so mm. I tend to not take those on, okay? Uh, or even if I take them on, I tend not to put that pressure on myself that, you know, this has to be done. So ultimately, it boils down to, in my definition, not taking yourself too seriously, even if you're doing serious things, okay? Right, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So now, uh, and in a minute, I'll come to the topic of uh, meaning and purpose. And I heard your TikTok as well at, uh, sorry, your talk at Google, and you mentioned about the aspect of meaning and purpose. But before that, 
I read a paper on uh, in US, UCLA in which they mentioned about a research wherein they saw people who had more of eudaimonic happiness, which is the happiness comes from serving and what you mentioned about serving other people, and compared to the happiness which you get more of the consumatory, uh, you know, kind of that lifestyle. And both happiness had a different uh, result in the you know in your immune system in terms of the first happiness led to the activation of genes which promoted health, right? Which was more of antibodies and antiviral uh, genes, right? So even in happiness, what is the source of happiness? Though the feeling remains the same, right? I may go and buy a thing on uh, a shop or maybe watch a movie. I feel happy, and I go and help somebody. I feel happy. So at a surface level, it looks me to the same thing. But deeper, at a level of genes, there is an impact happening, right? So, what is your uh, view on that part? I don't even know superficially if it's the same thing. I mean, you could say that I'm happy, but it's really a more specific kind of emotion. When you go and buy something, uh, I think that you have a sense of excitement about the stuff that you've bought. Maybe you want to try it. Maybe you feel a sense of pride that you know you own this new brand. Other people are going to look at you and say, "Oh, wow! You know, he's got an iPhone. Must be a big guy." The sense of pride, maybe it's egotistical. When you help mm -hmm. somebody out, I think that it's more of a sense of connection, sense of love, etc. So I don't even think that superficially they are the same emotion. Uh, yeah. Although people might use broadly speaking this word mm -hmm. called happy to refer to both positive emotions. Okay. And, and the, um, the, the point I was talking this because a lot of people say, "Okay, because." We know we have to be happy. Let's go and buy stuff. Let's go and you know party all day, right? That's what people associate with happiness, right? But there is a difference in what happiness uh, possibly uh, in a more long-term, sustained, permanent happiness, and what is a short-term, sensory pleasure possibly. So, if you can just throw light on that part. You know? So, uh, look, I mean, I I don't necessarily think that in some uh, broad sense. Pleasure is inferior to helping other people out. I don't think that that's true, in my opinion. Okay, I think that uh, there are certain practical reasons why it, a life in which you're only pursuing pleasure may not be a good life. I'm not drawing any moral conclusions about this. Okay, just from purely kind of um, utilitarian perspective, if you will. That is, that if your objective is to maximize the happiness you get out of life. From that perspective, it's better not to um, only focus on getting pleasure in your life. Okay, why? Because pleasure, in particular, okay, and by pleasure, what I mean is the positivity that you get out of positive sensory stimuli, stimuli right? right? Eating something tasty, or um, you know, having a good massage, or or things like that. Uh, the the problem with that is that it has a very short shelf life. Right, yeah. the hundredth bite of a chocolate is not going to be as tasty as the first bite, and it shouldn't be because if it was, then you'd probably end up eating, I don't know, you know, a thousand chocolates, and and you'll die, right? right. So um, there's an inbuilt kind of physical mechanism to prevent um, uh, you from overconsuming things that are pleasurable uh, because it's harmful for you. Okay, um, and that's called hedonic adaptation. Yes. And pleasure is most susceptible to hedonic adaptation, and so what it means is that pleasure can never last for a very long time. Okay, mm -hmm. you can have pleasure from eating, but it's only so much pleasure you can get from it in a moment, and then you have to shift to something else. You can get pleasure from listening to a beautiful song, and then you can get pleasure from a nice shower, and then you can get pleasure from smelling something beautiful, and so on. You have to keep shifting. Okay, you can't stay mm -hmm. on one thing. Okay, right. with with positive emotions, I think uh, even though many of them do have a similar kind of a shelf life. It's a longer kind of shelf life. Okay, so for right. example, love. 
in particular, it seems like has a, a long, you can, you can kind of experience love for a long, much longer time. Okay. Imagine yeah. friendships, right? Platonic love. Yeah. Um, yes. Your friends don't get boring with age. You know, if you get adapted to your friends, you know, you might say that, hey, you know, I'm done with this guy, right? Yeah. Like the 100 yeah. piece of chocolate, you know, I've, I've had enough of this guy. I don't want to go back yeah. to him. No, I mean, usually uh, friendships become better with time, like old wine, mm-hmm. they say, right? Yeah. Um, so the shelf life is longer. Um, and there are certain kinds of emotions uh, which are, don't even maybe have a term or a name in English, you know, uh, like Ananda, your, your name, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. this, this kind of joyful disposition or bliss that you get from uh, being connected with everything uh, mm-hmm. and recognizing the ultimate truth of things, right? Um, and going beyond the Maya. Uh, that kind of a bliss, which comes from just experiencing life as it's happening in the moment, right? Um, and connecting to it and, and, and having a sense of awe of, of the beauty of creation, that kind of a bliss can last forever. You know, you could be in the yeah. state of blissful you know, theoretically for, for a very long time. And so um, if you look at that whole gamut, I think that the pleasure that you get from helping other people out, okay, what you call eudaimonia, right? Nice. It's not necessarily only from helping other people out, but generally, you know, it comes from a more meaningful life, not just the pursuit of pleasure, not a hedonic, right. but a eudaimonic kind of an approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tends to last longer. And there's mm-hmm. many reasons for why that tends to, tends to last longer. One of the big reasons is that when you do something good for other people, uh, they have a tendency to want to reciprocate. They want to do something good for you in return. And so it, it, it sets up a kind of a virtuous cycle. Whereas if you eat a pleasurable chocolate, the chocolate doesn't... Yeah want to do anything right. back to you, right? I mean, right. Um, yeah. so uh, there's some systematic reasons for why um, helping other people out tends to propagate the positive emotions uh, right. versus pursuit of pleasure tends to kill it faster. So not even getting into the morality and ethicality of it, purely by mm-hmm. looking at it from a utilitarian perspective, it seems that a life in which you have a, a nicer balance between the two. I'm not saying that, you know, just do good things to other people and forget about pleasure, you know, suffer. That's not a good, I mean, I'm not a proponent of self-abnegation and self-sacrifice and things like that. I think you need to have a rich life. You need to have a full life. And when pleasure does come your way, right. um, Enjoy it. You know, that's the whole idea of the Epicurean philosophy, actually. I have so many things to ask, you know, because because of the time I have to also go to the main topic, but again, I'm going to catch hold of you sometime later. So now, Somebody who is listening to this episode right now, possibly in this Corona time would have lost a job, right? And having a kind of stress to that person, what would you say about at this point of time about happiness? Because the research shows that happiness also improves your productivity, your money life, abundance also increases. And the topic about meaning and purpose, I'm going to bring those two things as well inside. So somebody listening to it right now, who is in the verge of losing a job in a stressful situation, what is your advice on uh, what practices on uh, the, the number one, the concept of happiness, the purpose, the meaning that in a broader way, and then the application of it, how that's going to help somebody because they say, look, I mean, this is all good, but right now I'm stressful because I'm going to lose a job. Right? So how would you, uh, you know frame this for people like that? See, I think that even if you're going through a lot of stress and job uncertainty, um, I think that for that person too would recognize that the best thing that they can do right now is uh, be hopeful, be resilient, be optimistic, have mm-hmm. the energy to take the next step, whatever that next step is. Okay. 
say that you've already lost your job, the next step could be, you know, um, sending out your resume to people who might potentially hire you. Okay. Or learning something in this window of time that you have mm-hmm. that is going to make you a more attractive candidate for an upcoming job. Okay. So things right. like that, rather than just staying depressed and, you know, staying in your bed and not being able to kind of move out, etc. I think most people would recognize that there is a good way to approach this and a bad way to approach this. Okay. Now, of mm-hmm. course, you have to be self-compassionate and it's totally understandable if you're feeling depressed and you want to spend a couple of days, maybe even a week wallowing in self-pity and, you know, lying in your bed, but sooner rather than later, you have to kind of get out of that, snap out of that and, and take some action. Okay. And I think that's where happiness comes in handy. I think the positive emotions as Barbara Fredrickson, you know, in her book, Positivity puts it, they're like micronutrients, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they're not like carbohydrates or, or protein, but they're like vitamins. Okay. They give you this, uh, essential thing that's very, very important. Otherwise, you know, something important is missing in your life. Um, the more kind of, you know, essential big nutrients could be things like whether your family's, you know, uh, relationships are good and you have enough money in the bank, etc. But if you don't have a general level of emotional positivity, then you're not going to have the resilience. You're not going to have that optimism and positivity for you to get to start working. Okay. Right. So I can talk about some strategies that people who are in that situation can employ as well. But I'm just purely talking about the importance of happiness, even in perhaps, especially in moments of um, uncertainty and stress, like the ones that you pointed out. Right. So what a couple of practices you suggest to people like that, like how do you, how they'll start? Because in that moment, the state is so negative. You're feeling so down and you know the right thing to be done, but you don't have the will and the motivation to do the right thing. Right. So what are the, maybe if the word is quick fix, I don't know if that is the right term to use, but what are strategies which can be done right now to instantly feel better, feel more hopeful and then go for it? Yeah. So um, it, it kind of at some level depends on the personality of the person. Okay. Some right. of us are more um, uh, productivity oriented and we feel happier when we feel that we've been productive. We have not wasted time. And for those kind of people, I would say that, you know, carve out two, three hours a day. It doesn't have to be like huge amount of time, but two, three hours a day when you say that, okay, between 10 AM and 12 noon, Every day, I'm just going to do something that is work oriented, that's productivity oriented. Okay. Right, maybe it's right. um, polishing up my resume. Maybe it's sending out my resume to a bunch of people. Maybe it's doing a course. Okay. And if you still have a job, then maybe it's working on your job and so on and so forth. Okay. So that is uh, one. The second is uh, to identify a bunch of things that reliably put you in a positive state. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be talking to your nani on the phone because she always cheers you up because she's lighthearted and put things in perspective. Okay. Right. Maybe it's uh, catching up with an old friend uh, on zoom. Okay. Maybe it is uh, having a nice shower. You know, uh, for me taking a shower almost always kind of makes my mood just a little bit better, you know, 10%. Same, better. Yeah. Same. Yeah, right? I take yeah. twice a day and it puts my energy to a different level altogether. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's listening to some songs, you know, old songs yeah. that are, are on your favorite playlist. So, so you have to identify. Sorry to interrupt you. Sometimes people say like things like you mentioned right now, taking a shower, talking to her or calling somebody. They would say this is too like no too futile activity to be done right now. So from a scientific perspective, uh, there is research which shows that even that two minutes of happiness changes you, your biochemistry, uh, things at a deeper level. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, and and uh, you know they they talk about this right. The the journey of a thousand miles. Mm. begins with a step. Okay. 
So if you already shoot yourself in the foot and say that, look, I mean, you know, this is not going to really help me get a job. You know, what is this? You know, talking to my nanny is going to make me feel good in the moment, but it's not really solving the big problem that I have. Then, you know, you're not going to get anything done. Okay. Stop Mm -hmm. kind of like having those kind of thoughts and say that, okay, right now I'm not feeling so good. I'm going to do small things, little small things, each of which maybe only improve my happiness 1%. But when I put all of those things together, right, maybe it's going to improve my happiness by 20%, okay, which is pretty big, actually, uh, okay? Yeah. You'll be making a different decision if you're 20% mm. happier than you would be if you're not, okay? Maybe you'll actually send out that resume at the end of it, okay, rather than right. not doing it, and that could be the difference. So the idea is to, you know, like, uh, there's no silver bullet, okay, for happiness. As with any big goal in your life. There is no one thing that is going to suddenly solve it. They say, oh, you want to lose weight? Just, you know, avoid sugar altogether. Okay. Or exercise for two hours every day. No, that's not going to help. Okay. It's not going to solve the problem. Any complex goal is going to have to have all of the above as the approach. Okay. You're going to have to do a bunch of things. And happiness is the loftiest goal there is. Okay. No surprise that people like the Buddha had to leave the kingdom in order to pursue it. Right. Because it's not an easy goal to achieve, okay? And so if you set yourself the goal of happiness, then you're going to have to arrive at the conclusion that I'm going to have to stay disciplined. I'm going to have to be smart. I'm going to have a bunch of strategies, each of which may work only a little bit in certain circumstances. But uh, I'm going to employ uh, each strategy depending on the circumstance. And altogether, overall, it's going to push me in the right direction. Not 100%, not 100% of the time, but overall, my life trajectory is going to be in that direction, okay? That's... That is the truth. Okay. There's no silver bullet. There is no yeah. one thing that is going to make you constantly, instantly happy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about so many things like mirror neurons and negativity dominance, but I want to respect your time as well. So now I want to talk about the five things in which you mentioned about abundance mindset, right? So just can you just maybe in two minutes time dwell on that part as well, the abundance mindset, why that is a very critical aspect to people to follow, to develop possibly. Yeah. So you can think about many things that make you happy. And most of the time we feel that external circumstances uh, need to change for us to be happy. You know, I need to be married to a certain such and such a person or have so much money or, you know, hold this kind of a job, etc. And all of those do contribute to your happiness. No doubt about it. Okay. They do make your life better. But perhaps the single biggest determinant of your happiness is uh, your, your mindset. We already talked about this, right? Yes. The attitude you have towards life, uh, whether you feel you're, um, you're, you're somebody that um, is lucky and uh, that you get good breaks in life and the universe smiles upon you and gives you good things and God is kind if you believe in God, or do you feel that life is malign and it, any, any chance it gets to hurt you, it's like a, the universe is like a cat and you're the mouse and it keeps playing around with you, going around with you and one day it just eats you up. Okay. If you feel that way, then you, you have the negative mindset. Okay. The scarcity orientation. And, uh, uh, you know, there's just a lot of research showing that your mindset, uh, what you bring to the table, your attitude has a huge influence on your happiness. Not very surprising, right? right. The same situation, you can put two people in it. And one person will have a more positive attitude. The other person will have a less positive attitude. So, um, you know, that is very, very important. And I call it, you know, the abundance mindset where you feel that I'm taken care of by and large, most of the time I'm taken care of. I have everything I need more than enough. In fact, so what can I do for other people as opposed to, I don't have enough, you know, you're going around to the begging bowl, asking the universe, asking other people to fill it in with goodies. Right. Um, and, you know, there are strategies for developing the abundance mindset. I think the best strategy 
um, that I've discovered. It, it takes a little bit of time to do it, but the best strategy I've discovered is to just write three good things that happen to you on an everyday basis in your journal. Okay, yeah. if you do it for even six weeks, which I know sounds like a lot of time, but you know, in the large scheme of things, if you look at your whole life, it's not a, such a lo- long time. Like six weeks of diligent maintenance of three good things in your journal, every day write about three good things that happen to you, is going to fine-tune your mind to look at it from the standpoint of abundance rather than from the standpoint of scarcity. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Professor, um, no, I think I'm going to get you again in this podcast sometime later with your bit of more time. But, you know, I want my dream is to start a university where we get uh, scientists and uh, yogis together to do a research and develop a new way of education. And I think uh, I see a very amazing person in front of me right now to be one of those people in the university possibly. So, yes. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this show and I hope people who are listening to this gets more hope, more happiness and more strategies. I encourage people to really uh, do your course on our course, which is I think free of cost plus your book also and how people reach out to you. Uh, what is the best way to reach out to you uh, online? Uh, they can go to my website, happysmarts.com. Okay. H-A-P-P-Y-S-M-A-R-T-S. There's an S at the end.com. Uh, I do have a Facebook community as well. Right. And the Facebook uh, page is also called Happy Smarts. So right. if you go to those, uh, I think that might be the best way to connect. Sure. And what is one your uh, dream uh, to impact the world? Do you have a dream like that? One line? Like, what is the impact you want to leave on this world before you leave this planet? Nothing really. You know, I, I love uh, Mother Teresa saying in this context, you know, we cannot all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. You know, I just want to do small things with great love and whatever happens at the end, you know, the universe has been around for a while. It's going to exist for a while. You know? uh, yeah. Professor, thank you so much for your time. I really respect and thank you so much. I hope to see you again. God bless. Take care. Professor. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the episode. I hope you got some value. I request you do subscribe and share in your network. And I'll really appreciate if you can follow us on different social media platforms. You can find me with the name Avinash Anand Singh. Goodbye, take care, God bless and be iconic.